Hello and welcome to yet another fantastic episode of Bavarian Podcast Works. As always, I am Jake Fenner here, joined by my brother-in-arms for this podcast, Tom Adams. Tom, how are you doing on this fine Thursday? Generally well, although I have to admit I am a little bit paranoid. Just probably five to seven minutes ago, I did kill a massive spider relatively close to the desk that my laptop is on. So now every little itch um, or like little feeling I feel in my body, I think it's a spider that's coming to kill me. So um, I'm keeping my eyes peeled because I do not like spiders to begin with. But otherwise, generally well and happy to be back on talking about some more Bayern Munich wins. That's good, Tommy. How has the weather been down by you, by the way? Because for the last like week, it's been like mid mid to low 50s high 40s for us up here and i don't want to like jinx it but we may actually be getting good weather in upstate new york for once yeah in typical new england fashion here in connecticut it's been like 30 degrees one day and then mid 40s the next and right now to most of the day i would say it was in the high 40s and this weekend i'm actually going to be traveling to harrison new jersey to see the u.s women uh, take on spain at the red bull arena in the She Believes Cup, and I believe I've seen it's supposed to be almost 50 degrees there, but then apparently next weekend back in Connecticut, there may be snow on the way, so that's New England for you. You never know. Um, I just hope spring comes sooner rather than later. That is how New England is. So today on the podcast, we talk about the game against Schalke and the DFB Pokal, as well as some other games that happened in the competition throughout Tuesday and Wednesday. Then we look ahead to the game against Augsburg this Sunday, the Bavarian Derby, if you will, and the debut of some special kits. And then we end talking about the protests that have been going on throughout German soccer. But first, before we get to the protests that happened at the Hoffenheim game, we will talk about the positives that happened at the Hoffenheim game, specifically the great performance that Bayern put on in a 6-0 thrashing in Sinsheim. We start off in the second minute with a goal from Serge Gnabry, followed up five minutes later by a goal from Joshua Kimmich, and then only a couple of minutes just after that, the young 18-year-old Joshua Xerxes scored on his starting debut for Bayern Munich, and then we get a brace right after that in the 33rd and 47th minutes from Philippe Coutinho, his first goal-scoring performance for us in the Rückrunde, and Leon Goretzka scores in the 62nd minute before all hell breaks loose, but again, we will get to that later on. But first, we should talk about the positives from this, specifically some great performances from Xerxes and Philippe Coutinho, but there's another performance that you think should get some uh, some love there, Tom, so who do you think should get a bigger shout-out? Yeah, obviously with their performances, both uh, Coutinho, who I really think needed uh, a match like that with the brace that he got and very easily could have had a hat trick as well as Joshua Xerxes. Um, I know that on the last full Bavarian Podcast Works episode, I was speaking about just how good uh, Tiago has been, especially when Hansi Flick fields a lineup where there's a natural anchor or a natural number six in the midfield with him that allows Tiago to be more creative um, roam forward and get involved in the attack and really make things happen. And of course, on this occasion, it was Joshua Kimmich playing in that number six role in midfield. I know that in recent weeks, we've kind of seen Kimmich all over the place, as we'll get into later. But 
just again, when there's that natural anchor there in front of the defense, it gives Tiago all that license and all that freedom. And while he himself was not on the score sheet in this game, I think he made a lot of stuff happen. Um, and he's that natural metronome uh, in Bayern's midfield that's been so good and so dominant across all competitions in recent weeks. And looking at this from a, a broader scope, you know, a lot of concern uh, arose when we saw that Lewandowski was going to be out for four weeks with that um, with that knee slash tibia fracture um, and a lot of the initial reports had said you know what Gnabry has played center forward before this is probably what Hansi Flick is going to choose to do but instead he chose to keep the lineup the same and I think it's more of a matter of not moving the pieces in the puzzle around that are playing well for example a guy like Thomas Muller who has been so effective as that number 10 role just playing in behind the striker you know why fix what isn't broken in a sense and why move him around if he's been so effective from that position and likewise uh Gnabry from a wide right or from a wide left position um obviously with the injuries we do have it gave Coutinho a chance to come into the starting 11 but I think it was a fantastic decision just to put Xerxes right in Lewandowski's spot and I think he's shown that uh, there's a reason why Hansi Flick has showed continued confidence in him and not only did he score his goal, he was involved in three of the goals. For um, Kimmich's goal, he was one of the guys who took a touch into the box. Yes, it did get stripped, but it fell right to Kimmich. Uh, and even on the first goal where Nabry, Gnabry excuse me, had that um, like side-footed volley, it was Xerxes who had played the ball out with a clever quick touch in a tight space to Thomas Muller, who found Gnabry uh, making that fine run. And I uh, was a little surprised to uh, not see Xerxes start the next game, but this just proves that um, he's an option moving forward. You know, no Lewandowski, who cares? We're still going to put five or six goals past you. Um, but again, you got to highlight the uh, the emphasis and the importance of Tiago having that freedom. Because if you keep Tiago free like that in the midfield, good things are going to continue to happen. So let's roll right into Schalke because unlike this 6 nothing win against Hoffenheim, this matchup in the Pokal was actually relatively low scoring, kind of surprisingly. The only goal came in the 40th minute from Joshua Kimmich right off of a corner from Philippe Coutinho, who's met with a clearance by a Schalke defender. It fell right in front of Kimmich at the top of the box, who struck it low and sent it in. Yet surprisingly, this Bayern performance was so dominant, and yet it only produced one goal throughout all of it, despite all of Bayern's efforts. Coming from a team where, when we talked about them in our last episode of Der Ausblick, one of the things that we really mentioned was how hampered by injuries they were, and yet for some reason they were able to only force Bayern to have only one goal. Tommy, why do you think that was? As we talked about in the Ausblick, with the amount of injuries that David Wagner has been forced to deal with, he really didn't have much choice. And with Bayern coming to town, he knew that he had to keep things very tight and very compact. Uh, to make sure that this wasn't, you know, floodgates open right from the off as it was uh, for Bayern in Sinsheim against Hoffenheim. And it's kind of funny because he actually made a lot of the changes to a starting lineup that uh, we had predicted in our Ausblick, uh, aside from the fact that he chose to go with a, what looked to be like a back five uh, instead of a back four and, and going with... Um, five in the midfield and then just one up one up top and I will also use this chance to correct myself I know uh, in the Ausblick you may not have caught on to it but um, I did mix up Alessandro Schaff and Guido Bergstaller I was referring to Bergstaller as a midfielder which isn't the case it was just one of those weird slip-ups I had been watching a lot of Schalke highlights in the build-up to this one uh, to get a good idea of the ebb and flow and how they've been playing and 
I just got them uh, mixed up. Obviously, I know Bergstaller is a striker, not a defensive midfielder, and I know that Schaff is a midfielder, so uh, apologies there because I want to be as accurate as I can. But again, I'm, and I mean, looking at the lineup that Wagner put out and just looking at the statistic sheet, you know, it's really no surprise. A lot of people have referred to this as a Pep Guardiola-esque performance from Bayern he's obviously a manager who's very very possession based and with 80 percent possession in this one and only uh, a few shots to show for it uh, that kind of just is a statistic that you can just basically get a good idea of how the game went Um, I thought that Schalke had a few chances when they broke forward I believe Schaff actually was one of the players who had a chance in the first half um, that had Manuel Neuer stretching and then uh, Benito Roman who had come on in the second half had a pretty good one um midway through the second half on a breakaway but it was really only the opportunities that we gave them through mistakes or losing possession a little bit too cheaply or you know the the counterattacks off of set pieces that were uh, playing into Schalke's hand that was like the game plan in my opinion from uh, David Wagner holding on as much as they could keeping things tight but uh yeah thankfully uh, Kimmich pulled up with a wonder strike playing as a center back so again this guy has been everywhere midfield right back center back you name it Kimmich can play anywhere um, maybe we'll see him as a wide attacking midfielder, a center attacking mid, or perhaps even a striker someday this season. It, it wouldn't surprise me. It was just yet another fantastic performance from him. Um, definitely uh, future captain material, and I uh, I can't wait to see that day because this guy can just do it all. And I have to give a shout out to our uh, the late and great uh, Chuck Smith because I remember him tweeting a couple of tweets. Just the intensity that Kimmich shows every game. Is it really a Bayern Munich game if we don't have at least? one gif or one image of Kimmich being over the top intense uh, and that's true that's just his game that's uh, the way he is and we absolutely love it another fine performance from him yeah and maybe we could also see Manuel Neuer in midfield at some point right yeah why not who am I kidding he plays midfield every game what am I talking about and back to your point on Pep Guardiola I was a little bit concerned about that after watching this game because you are right he was very uh possession-based Hansi Flick was when he came out with this game plan, and I, for one, loved the style of play that Bayern had over the last couple of games under Hansi, and it seemed like they decided that they wanted to keep possession but wanted to be a little bit more direct with it and I loved that. It was exciting, it was high intensity, it almost resembled at some points the kind of heavy metal football that we expected from Jurgen Klopp, but to watch this game, it kind of seems a little bit unnerving, like a slight step back in my my estimation, but if it's one game, that's fine. I just hope that this doesn't continue uh, for much longer because I really did enjoy that high-intensity, high-press Bayern Munich football over the last couple of games. But now we go ahead and take a look at the other games in the Pokal. Uh, Werder Bremen versus Eintracht Frankfurt. It was just a really boring game. It was really sad to watch. Kind of a bit of a pathetic performance from Werder Bremen. They didn't really challenge Eintracht at all at the Commerzbank Arena. They didn't really put any chances on. I guess the only uh, highlight was that they were able to have Philip Kostic of Eintracht get sent off in the 91st minute, but two goals in the back of the net, none in response from Werder Bremen. Uh, if you're a Bremen fan, you're very upset. If you're Marco Polo, you're extremely happy, and if you're an Eintracht Frankfurt fan, you're very happy that you moved on to the next round. Meanwhile, we go 
to Leverkusen, looking at Bayer versus Union Berlin. Union led for a large portion of the game after a wonderful header in the 39th minute, but Union's Christopher Lenz got a second yellow card in the 71st minute, and it was just all downhill from there. Bellarabi in the 72nd, Aranguiz in the 86th, and then Musa Diaby just burying the nail in this coffin in stoppage time. Leverkusen wins 3-1. Now, those two games were important, I guess, but not nearly as exciting. And I can even say this as a Bayern fan after the 1-0 win over Schalke. The best game of this round of the DFB Pokal was Saarbrücken versus Fortuna Dusseldorf. It was one of the most heart-pounding games I had ever seen in a while. In a while in German football. It was probably, to me, one of the most exciting games of this season, at least from a neutral fan's perspective, because here's the way the game really played out. It was 1-1 after 90 minutes and extra time, but that's not to say that both teams didn't really go out there and give it their all and put their chances out there. There were 10 rounds of penalties, 20 kicks per side, but the real difference maker was one of the men between the sticks. It was Saarbrücken's Daniel Batz. He Previously had time as a goalkeeper for Freiburg and Kaiserslautern before going to Chemnitzer. He's 29. He's towards the end of his career playing fourth division football with Saarbrücken. But not only did he save a penalty kick in regular time, but he then went on to save four PKs in the penalty stage, including the very last one to send Die Molster to the semifinals the first time in German football history that a fourth division side has reached the semifinal of the DFB Pokal. Tom, what did you think of that game? What did you think of all these other games? And who do you want Zarbrücken to draw in the semifinals? <laughs> to answer the second part of your question, just draw Leverkusen so that we don't have to play them in the next round. And if they make it all the way, we can just worry about facing them in the final because... As you mentioned, our game a lot less aesthetically appealing than this one, especially uh, with the aspect of the Cinderella story. And it was crazy to see Bats make so many saves, not only uh, were cumulatively, I should say, in the penalty shootout and uh, in regular time. And it's crazy just looking at the stat sheet, too. There was like five yellow cards in the span of like five minutes uh, at the end of the uh, the second half of extra time, which was crazy. That gives you an idea of how uh, scrappy this one got at the end. And I just, I love. Um, I loved just watching the highlights of the the penalty shootout um, and extra time, especially just because it's one of those smaller venues uh, where the crowd is just right on top of you, and it's almost like the, the the players are can almost, or excuse me, the fans can almost touch the net from how close they are behind the net during the penalty shootout, uh, and it was just amazing to see uh, such heroics from from a keeper who's, as you mentioned, kind of bounced around uh, clubs in Germany and 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 come to fruition at Saarbrücken, and, and congratulations to them. I know that their fans. Uh, going to absolutely love going on to the semifinals. Hopefully, for their sake, they don't draw us. Um, but either way, um, it's going to be a fantastic experience, whoever they draw. Um, and just going off of the, uh, the the other results, I mean, I think that we both got all of these right. <laughs> we both were pulling for Saarbrücken and obviously Bayern, and we both had picked uh, Leverkusen and Eintracht to go through. With with Eintracht, it's just one of those things, Werder Bremen, it just like goes from bad to worse. Even looking at the the stat sheet for that one, they they slightly edged out in possession shots, shots on target, um, but just still couldn't get anything past Eintracht Frankfurt. And 
Werder Bremen, you know, I don't know how much longer Florian Kofeld has. A lot of their fans are already, you know, calling for his head and calling for his removal. I just, you know, this was the last thing that they were really playing for because, you know, they're <laughs> in in danger of uh, being in the relegation zone um, if they have drop a couple more points in the season. But, um, yeah, good for Eintracht. I mean, it'd be nice to face them, um, get some more revenge on them. I know we have a little bit of a history with them in the DFB Pokal and, Obviously, we all remember that 5-1 thrashing uh, a la Nico Kovac's last game earlier this season, so it would be nice to uh, draw them in the semis, knock them out, and then face either Leverkusen or Saarbrücken in the, in the final. And as you mentioned, Leverkusen in Berlin was close uh, for for a long while. Um, it was nice to see that uh, Union Berlin had opened the scoring first, but as you mentioned, uh, the red card of Christopher Lenz really changed everything, and it's just kind of a shame from Union's perspective that that happened because that really was the uh, you know the, the changing of the tide, so to speak, in that game. As you mentioned, Arangis and Diaby coming through with the uh, the winning goals after Bellarabi had opened it for Leverkusen, and but yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. And um, congrats to Leverkusen. Hopefully you draw Sauerbrook, and let's cr keep our fingers crossed and hope the draws go that way. Leverkusen, Sauerbrook, and Eintracht Bayern. And we are going to go ahead now and take a quick break. When we come back, we will preview the upcoming game against Augsburg. Welcome back, and now we are going to talk about this weekend's game against Augsburg. We will try our best, at least, to talk about this weekend's game against Augsburg because Augsburg have been not the greatest of teams over this season. They are currently 13th in the Bundesliga table with a negative 14 goal difference and 27 points. Their last five games look something like this. A win against Werder Bremen, a draw to Freiburg, but then... Losses to three big teams, Borussia Mönchengladbach, Bayer Leverkusen, and Eintracht Frankfurt. Funny enough, Bayern Munich and Augsburg have been a bit of a contentious matchup over the last... Bayern versus Augsburg, funny enough, has been a bit of a contentious matchup over the last couple of years, but... All of the sad, embarrassing results we usually remember against Augsburg are all draws because the last time that Bayern lost to Augsburg came in May of 2015. But remember, like, how many awful results we've had against Augsburg in the past. And it kind of just shows you how sadly one-sided this derby really is. It's almost not even a competitive derby at this point. Tom, hopefully I didn't just jinx this, but what do you expect out of this game yeah i mean hopefully not another draw we'll say that but just looking at, at current form from both sides on one side you have us Bayern. uh most goals scored in europe this season 107 i believe is the tally that i saw earlier currently in some of the best form of the season absolutely flying it seems as if no one can stop us and then you have augsburg who have already conceded 50 goals on the season and I believe have already conceded 19 in the Rukrunda, which is the worst defensive record thus far in the Rukrunda in the Bundesliga. Uh, so not exactly boding well for them <laughs> as they're about to come to the Allianz Arena. Um, and, and just one of the things I noticed um, that's been touched based on in the, the previews for this that I've been reading is just Martin Schmidt um, constantly tweaking and toying with the, the back four um, there's rarely uh, a consistent center back pairing. 
you know, with his back line, he obviously has uh, Stefan Licksteiner, Philip Max, uh, Raphael Framberger, but he's tweaking around with, uh, <laughs> however you pronounce his name, Jeffrey Guvaluf, uh the Dutch center back, Felix Udekai, and Tin Yedvai. Uh, it seems that he can just never find the right mix uh, of defenders, especially the center back pairing, and that's really costed them. And just Augsburg, I've had, it, it's, it's such a weird one. As you mentioned, obviously, scoring literally in the first minute and the 91st minute against us last time in, in um, October in the first meeting between us this season. It, they're just like they play, they show how well they can play in streaks, but it just does not last for very long. Like taking uh, their match last weekend against München Gladbach, for example, I thought they responded really well to going down uh, in the second half. And literally, I think all the goals happened in the second half against in, in that game. Gladbach ultimately came out 3 2 winners, but from from Augsburg's perspective, you know, that playing well in streaks is, is nice and it's nice to show those flashes. But if there's such a steady drop off after a period of good play, you know, that it's not going to be sustainable and you're not going to be able to uh, get points that you need. Um, they are safe from the relegation zone, but I mean, it's one of those things where Schmidt really needs to try and find uh, the right combination of players to put out there and, and the consistency uh, otherwise, they're just going to keep dropping points. And, yeah, as you mentioned, I hope we didn't just jinx everything. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there, I don't see any way that Augsburg uh, come away with any points with the way that Bayern are playing right now. There's just no reason why we shouldn't score at least three or four goals in this one and and keep a clean sheet. I guess the more exciting news from all of this is that Bayern will be wearing those uh, 120-year birthday kits. Tom, are you excited to see those? I am very excited, um, especially with the whole timeline being the, the chief architect of Bavarian Fashion Works. It's nice to see something like this go full circle because we were initially reporting on when the designs, the initial images were first leaked from this uh, this kit, and now we're going to see it in full force on Sunday. Not only um, in a Bayern Munich game, but a Bavarian derby, so it has... Uh, extra meaning, you know, there's just so much history behind this kit, um, and I think it's going to be a fantastic occasion, and I just hope it's not one of those uh, doozy matches where we decide to switch our kit and all of a sudden stop playing how well we've been playing thus far, but, um, you know, this is a far way off from the mint green monstrosities, so um, I like these kits a lot. I'm very excited to see these showcased uh, on such an occasion. I mean, it is only Augsburg, but let's be real, it is a Bavarian derby, uh, so there's so much behind it, and uh, let's create some history in it by absolutely battering Augsburg. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be talking about the heavier news of the week. Welcome back, and now we return to an old favorite of a segment before we go. We didn't really have one of these before because we didn't have anything incredibly like controversial or important to say or talk about. I guess until now, because today, this segment of Before We Go goes a little something like this. We live in a universe that allows for two things to be true at the same time. Given the vastness of the world we live in, we have to allow for such things. In the world of German football, a normal weekend was brought to a screeching halt when Bayern Munich Ultras displayed a banner using verbal abuse to criticize Hoffenheim owner Dietmar Hopp. You can agree with the banner, you can agree with the Ultras, and you can disagree with both as well. You can also disagree with Dietmar Hopp and the Day of Bay and all of the thousands of permutations onto this. 
you can both agree and disagree with them at the same time because from one thing that this past week has taught us, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer either. There's only a question of how we can improve and go forward from here. So in this segment, I'm going to analyze the three things about this incident. The background to the protests, the Ultra's actions, and the DFB's response, and how everyone needs to improve, at least in my opinion. First of all, we're not going to repeat on this podcast what was said on the banners. We can start off with who they targeted. Dietmar Hopp has been the symbolic punching bag of anyone who is a supporter of the 50 plus 1 rule. And it's not to say that there aren't major companies that own clubs and therefore are exceptions to the rule, because if it wasn't for that, then Bayer Leverkusen and VFL Wolfsburg would not only see the success they currently have, but probably would not exist. Bayer Leverkusen, of course, was started by the Bayer Pharmaceutical Corporation and VFL Wolfsburg, and the city of Wolfsburg itself was founded by Volkswagen when they set up their factory there. They not only have a long history of supporting these teams, they have been written into their charters, their founders of them. The same cannot be said for Hoffenheim, a club who existed in obscurity in the lower divisions of German football until Hopp, an alumnus of the club, bought into it and began investing. It can clearly be said that the success of the club was artificially inflated by Dietmar Hopp, making him the closest thing German football has to Sheikh Mansour. As a result, the ultras of most major football clubs have attacked Hopp relentlessly. Most notably, the vitriol of Borussia Dortmund fans has been exceptionally vocal. Hopp, tired of the relative bullying, has used his power in the past to do many things against Bay 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 fans, including using noise machines to drown out anti-Hop chants, as well as installing microphones to hear in on people that are attacking him. These were used to such a volume that people have sustained injuries, people have been prosecuted, threatened with lawsuits, and in some small cases, arrested. Dortmund fans retaliated in kind, using symbols of crosshairs on Hopp's face and banners over recent years. Hopp has used his influence in the DFB to ban Dortmund fans from attending away games in Sinsheim for two years, and it takes a true snowflake of a person to run crying to the DFB about something that is viewed as a common insult in Germany, but sadly, DFB gave in to his demands because... Apparently, the line in the sand can be drawn when a 79-year-old white billionaire is offended. But at least that's my opinion. This collective punishment against Dortmund fans outraged other fans and ultras across Germany, including the Bayern ultras, which led to the events that happened on Saturday. In a statement, the ultras group agreed that the use of the words was coarse and not in their usual style, but more so a callback to what Dortmund fans had said. They also added that the responses from the Bayern board and the DFB were exaggerated. Furthermore, they piled onto the DFB, saying they broke a promise to waive collective penalties like the ones Dortmund fans received, adding punishments like these trivialized victims of racial hostility. Racial incidents have plagued German soccer over the last few months, and punishments have been varied and non-effective. Players like Hertha's Jordan Taranariga have been subjected to abuse from fans, like when he lashed out in anger on a crate of water bottles and was sent off in a DFB Pokal match against Schalke. Schalke, meanwhile, has a board member 
Clemens Toenis, who over the summer made disgusting and racist remarks about African peoples. His only punishment was that he had to step down from the Schalke board for a couple of months. Otherwise, he went relatively off the hook. Bayern's ultras are criticizing the DFB for this exact response, saying, quote, comparing a mere insult in the form of banners or chants to racially motivated acts is simply idiotic. The media hierarchy and the players are also lacking in substance in their statements. Angry comments and appeals for more tolerance on social media are missing any self-reflection. On the other hand, active engagement against incidents against anti-Semitism, homophobia, and racism are rarely on the agenda. Instead of empty words, actions should also follow. Which is where we can ask how we can improve. I personally don't agree with the words used against Hop, who is himself a controversial figure in the realm of racism, given his family's uh, history with the Nazi party and his comments about them. However, their protest does highlight a major disparity. The Dave Bay media and others, including the Byron board, were incredibly outraged by this incident in the past. And while the Byron board has been incredibly critical of racial incidents in soccer in the past, the same level of outrage seen in this incident is not always seen by the media or higher-ups in German soccer, which is disheartening. This leads me to ask a question. If the higher-ups in German soccer aren't doing enough, who will? And the answer is the clubs and fans themselves. Schalke recently announced a one-step plan against hate, saying players will stop playing if there is any hateful chanting, banners, or noises at the Veltens Arena this season. Whether or not this will happen at a club with Toenis as a board member is yet to be seen. Bayern, meanwhile, have established a, a commission to investigate Saturday's events and also to create short and medium-term measures against hate while also releasing an anti-racism campaign earlier on Thursday. But some of you may say this isn't enough then I would say to look to the lower tiers of German football, because just a few weeks ago, in a Dreiliga match between Preissenmünster and Würzburger kickers, a Würzburger player was subjected to racial abuse from a Münster fan. And instead of sitting and doing nothing, the fan was pointed out by his fellow supporters, was arrested, and ejected from the stadium to choruses of Nazis out chants. And maybe they are the example in this situation. Because for my money... The answer to the question, what should we do about racial and abusive incidents if nothing is being done, should be somebody should do something. So that's my take, at least, for before we go. Tom, I know that you probably have thoughts on this, so go ahead and let them out. Yeah, it, it's as you mentioned, there's just so many moving parts to this, um, and it's a delicate situation, and I feel as if there's a general uh, opinion out there on both sides that people share, um, but because the subject matter is so delicate, it's sometimes difficult to put into words, but um, I guess in my attempt to explain that, I mean, there's absolutely no secret that not only, um, you know, Red Munich Fanatics or Schickeria or Bayern's Ultras groups or, you know, Ultras groups from other Bundesliga clubs or other clubs uh, amongst the DFL, it's absolutely no secret that they've had long-standing strifes with both the DFB and the DFL. Um, for a number of different reasons, you know, if you recall back to last season, in pretty much every round of the DFB Pokal, there were protests that interrupted almost, I should say not almost, but the the majority of games in every single round. And, you know, they were protesting things like uh, the DFB wanting to slap tougher sanctions uh, on venues, limiting the use of 
megaphones, uh, speakers, flags, banners, you know, all things that are very integral to, to the ultras groups during matches. Um, also higher police presences at uh, certain grounds that they felt um, where those particular clubs felt they were being discriminated against. Um, so it's no secret that these strifes have, have existed for a long, long time. And, you know, I think from the Bayern's ultras perspective for what they did in Hoffenheim in that away block is just more a matter of principle. Um, personally, I think that uh, what Dortmund ultras had done as well as um, ultras from mentioning Gladbach putting Dietmar Hopp's uh, face or silhouette or obviously a picture depicting him in crosshairs, I think that's 100% um, distasteful and 100% crossing the line and can be interpreted as a direct threat to his life and there's absolutely no reason uh, to do that and there's no room for that uh, in football or sport or, or, or anywhere for that matter um, and as you mentioned the term that they use you know we won't repeat that uh, on the airwaves here I think everyone knows what we're talking about um, the Bayern Ultras uh, Red Munich Fanatics uh, they had even said that the only reason they used that word is because that's what was used by the Dortmund fans um, which resulted in the sanctions uh, placed against them where they can no longer travel to uh, Sinsheim, uh, to the Rhein-Neckar Arena for matches to sit in the away block for the next the next two years. So that was part of the reason, was just to show solidarity. Um, and I think that solidarity reaches far beyond just Bayern Ultras and Dortmund Ultras, but, you know, Ultras for all of the the clubs uh, across the Bundesliga and, and, and the DFL. And I think that uh, they were just so fed up Um Yes, I do think a line was crossed with the language that they used as well as the uh, the images of Dietmar Hopp's head and crosshairs from the Gladbach and the Dortmund fans, but I can understand you know, where they are, from the fans' point of view, enough is enough. And you know, even after Hansi Flick, Hassan Salihamidzic, the players, Oliver Kahn, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge uh, came onto the pitch to try and get them to take the banner down. You know, They didn't want to take it down. They wanted their message... Uh, to be heard, and I almost think, in a sense, that had the game been completely suspended and had the two sides not made the decision to come back out and just pass the ball around for you know whatever it was the uh, like closing 13 minutes, the ultras would have got what they wanted. You know, they 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 wanted their voice to be heard. They want change to be made, um, and they want the DFB and the DFL to listen. And going back to that point of principle, as you mentioned. You know, why do you have these uh, protocols set in place to monitor things that are going on in the stands uh, for discrimination and abuse and then not use it when one of the worst possible things is happening on a football pitch? As you mentioned, Jonathan Tornigia being um, exposed to racial chants in the DFB-Pokal call match between Hertha Berlin uh, and Schalke. And not only that, but getting sent off for his reaction where he was visibly and noticeably uh, very, very disturbed uh, by the incident coming from a club from, as you as you mentioned, uh, Clemens uh, Tonys, who has said, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's sickening that in that instance, the protocol was not used properly. And for what happened in Sensheim, it was. And that's where the ultras are coming from. And I think for them, enough was enough. So yes, the conversation needs to be restarted. And I think where a lot of this can come down to, not to say that this is not already happening, 
But I think perhaps what the board members on the DFA and the DFL need to do is perhaps maybe look at making reforms uh, to the 50 plus one rule if there's never going to be enough votes to get rid of it. Uh, maybe make the necessary reforms so there's not uh, uh, any way possible for clubs or, uh, you know, billionaire uh benefactors or you know outside rich investors to circumvent the rules that are in place um, obviously we have two clubs in the Bundesliga one being Hoffenheim uh, another being uh, RB Leipzig who have completely circumvented the 50 plus one rules and technically not done anything uh, that breaches the rules and the regulations that are in place by the DFB and the DFL for 50 plus one but it's clearly obvious that um <laughs> they've circumvented those rules. So I think that uh, perhaps getting the conversation started there and sitting down with representatives from these these groups of ultras from all of the clubs across uh, German football, uh, that conversation needs to take place because I think for what German football stands for and what the 50 plus one rule stands for, that's what has to take place. And, you know, having a zero tolerance policy for for racist incidents, discriminatory incidents, yes, that's necessary. But uh, the root problem here with these protests, I, I do feel like, has to do with, with that rule, and there needs to be reform in that respect. And I think once that decision has been made to sit down, to m make that agreement to sit down and have those conversations, I think we'll start to see some, some movement in the right direction. But until that happens, uh, it's just going to be you know a, an enormous double standard that is just going to cause... Uh, more problems and um, yeah I mean as I mentioned this is a very difficult thing to, to talk about but um, a, a historic time in German football nonetheless yeah and just to just to be clear right about just to clarify my comments from earlier right I I, I have my own personal opinions about like the person that is Dietmar Hopp but I would never want to advocate for for attempts on his life or things like that, I don't think that it's appropriate to, like, put his face with crosshairs on it, right? But, again, it just kind of lended itself to what you said at the beginning of your of your statement, Tom. There are so many different moving parts to this that at sometimes it feels impossible to stay on top of the entire situation all the time, but... Um, I think what we can all agree on is that uh, more needs to be done from every level, and it's not going to be a quick and easy process, and hopefully that uh, if this incident leads to incidents of racism being treated as seriously and with as much um, international attention as this one got then hopefully things will improve. I hope that racial incidents get this level of attention because it's disgusting and it doesn't need to be in German football. It doesn't need to be in football, period. So that's all we can hope for. We can hope that we can look to this as hopefully an example and a turning point of better things to come down the line evolving from this. So yeah, uh, that's where we're going to leave this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Sorry to end it on a more dour note, but I mean, what can you do? We kind of have been talking about this for an entire week. Um, be sure to like, rate, share, subscribe, and download. 
Um, follow us on Twitter at Bavarian FB Works, and we will see you later. Auf Wiedersehen.